If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to the book of Psalms. Psalm 107 will be our text this afternoon. And I'll just say it's good to be back with you all. I know I was back last week, but it's good to be preaching again. I've preached six times in three different churches since the last time that I preached here. Um, and I'm excited to be back. I think some people have favorite preachers, right? But not that I'm pointing at myself like I'm your favorite preacher, but preachers have favorite people to preach to, and you guys are my favorite people to preach to. So it's good to be home. Um, Just so you kind of know where we're heading as you turn to Psalm 107, uh, plans for December, our preaching schedule. Uh, My hope is to take some time to look at John chapter 1, about the incarnation, and as John describes what that means, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, all those great tech, those great verses and truths about who Christ is in his incarnation. Uh, we'll take at least three weeks, if not four, to look at John chapter 1. On the 23rd, we'll have a joint service in the morning here with Encounter. If we haven't finished, if we haven't exhausted John chapter 1 at that point, we'll still be in John 1. Uh, if we feel like it's a good place to stop, we'll do something else on the 23rd. But I suspect we'll take four weeks in John 1. Uh, the last Sunday of the year in, in December, I'm, I'm hoping to look at Numbers 6 and that benediction, that great benediction in Numbers 6 as we sort of close out the year and look into the new year. Um, and then in, in January, we will resume our study in the book of Acts. So we'll just take a little brief hiatus Um, and then jump back into it in January. But for this afternoon, we're going to take up Psalm 107. It's a a psalm of thanksgiving, which is appropriate, obviously, for this week in particular. Uh, Maybe you spent this last Thursday uh, sharing at some point what you were thankful for. Uh, Family, financial blessings, health, food. These are the things that often come out of our mouths when we're gathered around the Thanksgiving table. And these are good things. They are blessings from the hand of God. It's good and right to give thanks to God for every good gift because he is the source of everything that is good. There's a great Thanksgiving song called Don't You Want to Thank Someone. It's not officially a Thanksgiving song, but it works well. It's by this guy, Andrew Peterson. And um, he talks about how seeing the beauty in the world, we are filled with this desire to thank someone which is not necessarily an airtight argument, but it is also, it's a decent one for the existence of God. The fact that there is within us this desire to thank someone. That's why G.K. Chesterton has said, the worst moment for an atheist is when he is really thankful and has no one to thank. It's classic G.K. Chesterton. But everyone longs to give thanks, and if we've been redeemed by God through the work of Jesus Christ, then we have even more to give thanks for. And it's this redeeming love of God through Christ that should always be at the top of our list of things that we are thankful for. And yet, for some reason, I think it's often hard for us to put into words our thanks for redemption, our thanks for salvation, our thanks for what God has done for us in Christ. And I don't think it's just because we don't have words for it, but it's because we don't fully understand or grasp how great our redemption is. That's why the Psalms are so good, because the Psalms give us words and give us ways to express that thanksgiving and help us to dig down deep and think about 
what God has done for us in Christ. There's a reason there's so much poetry in the scriptures because sometimes it's hard to express what we feel and these psalms and songs give us words for what's in our heart. And I think sometimes it's easier for us to be thankful for what's in front of us, what we can see. And so the Psalms give us pictures for what God's redeeming love looks like towards his children. And so I want us to just begin by reading Psalm 107. It's a little bit longer than a typical song. It's 43 uh, verses. And there's a, there's uh, three, I'll call them choruses, or, or not choruses, three verses within this. Um, and see if you can spot those. A key word to look for, as I read, would be the word some, and that's going to mark out four different verses to this song. Um, And so hear God's word from Psalm 107. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew, drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them, and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving, and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people, and praise him in the assembly of the elders. He turns rivers into a desert. Springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. 
He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water, and there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing, they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Verse 43, whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. As we look at all of these verses, we find that the psalmist opens with this joyful call for everyone to give thanks to the Lord. For every person to acknowledge that all that they have from God, all that they have is from God's good and merciful hand. And in particular, it's the goodness of God and the merciful, steadfast love of God that we are supposed to give thanks for. We're to pause and give thanks that God is good, that he possesses a goodness seen through his mercy and his grace and his kindness and his provision and his deliverance from trouble. At the core of who God is, is, is his goodness. And that goodness is tasted by all human beings who live, but especially by those who are his redeemed children. Spurgeon said that God's goodness is no common goodness. He is good by nature and essence and proven to be good in all the acts of his eternity. Compared with him, there is none good, no, not one. But he is essentially perpetually, superlatively, infinitely good. We are the perpetual partakers of his goodness and therefore ought above all his creatures to magnify his name. So we give thanks to God for his goodness, but also for his steadfast love. And it's this eternal, ever-enduring love that is the anchor of this psalm. God's steadfast love. It's, it's woven throughout all 43 verses, and it's, it's what verse 43 calls us to wisely pause and consider. Did you see that? Verse 43, whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. We're supposed to consider, to think about, to pause and remember the steadfast love of the, of the Lord. It's the Hebrew word hesed. And when we think about it, it leads us to thanksgiving. And so here at the beginning and the end of the psalm, we find the main idea of this psalm. It's simple, isn't it? It's consider the steadfast love of the Lord to all who cry out to him and give him thanks for it. Consider the steadfast love of the Lord to all who cry out to him. And then in response, and give him thanks for it. The whole psalm helps us to understand this, this steadfast love of God, the, the hesed of God. It teaches us about the kind of unwavering love and mercy that God has. It shows us that God's love is a love that is joined to commitment. God's love is a loyal love. It's, it's an unfaltering love. Paul Miller describes this hesed love as a, a setting of the will to love 
regardless of any external factors. God sets his will. He is committed to love us. So God's love is not rooted in us or in the situations that we find ourselves in, but rather it's rooted in his unchanging, rock-solid commitment to his own glory and to our good. The love spoken of here is a love that redeems us. It rescues and it saves us from every situation. And if we are the redeemed of verse 2, if we are those who have been rescued from trouble and evil, if we are those who have been gathered from lands out of difficulty and death, and if we've been rescued by the goodness and loving kindness of God alone, then we are to give thanks. And we're supposed to tell everyone who will hear just what God has done for us. So I want to invite you into wisdom. That's what this psalm tells us. Whoever is wise should do something, and it's to consider the steadfast love of the Lord. So I want to invite you to pause, to be wise. Let's let's seek the wisdom that pauses to think on who we were apart from God's grace in Christ and about what he has done because of and through his steadfast, loyal love. It could be that you realize through God's word for the first time that you are in need of God's redeeming love. Or maybe you'll just remember how great God's loving kindness is. Or maybe you will rest afresh and anew on his unwavering mercy. But however the Spirit would lead us, let's consider, let's pause, let's think about the steadfast love of the Lord to all who cry out to him. And in response, let's give him thanks for it. To help us do that, to help us consider these things, the psalmist illustrates four groups of people who were redeemed out of trouble, and then he speaks of the powerful ways that God works in redemption. It's likely that the historical setting for this psalm, being book five and of, of, the, of the Psalter, that, that it's likely that this is during the return of the Israelites from their captivity in Babylon. So that redemption from captivity would have been in their hearts and and in their, their minds. But it also speaks of how God seeks out and God rescues all who are helpless and all who are lost, whether in a foreign land or in the dark forest of sin, whether, as verse 3 says, whether they're in the north, the south, the east, or the west, all corners of the earth, God is seeking out and rescuing people, whether they're wandering in the desert, as we'll see, or lost, or, or lost, in a storm on the ocean. Wherever we find ourselves in need, God rescues and redeems all who will cry out to him. Remember that the scriptures are meant to be understood by all of God's children. And so it's not surprising that the pattern in verses 4 through 32 is an easy one to see. You should spot it. God's word is meant to be understood. And it begins with this description of people. The pattern is it begins with a description of people who are in distress. And then at some point, we see it in verse 6, we see it in verse 13, verse 19, and verse 28. At some point, they cried to the Lord in their distress, and he delivered them. And then there's an appeal at the end of each of these sections that in light of that deliverance, it says, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. So after what we would call maybe the introduction of verses one through three, we have these four verses to sing along with that's followed by this bridge and a conclusion in verses 33 through 43. So you kind of see the structure of this song. And I want to ask poetically, what's the author trying to accomplish with these four groups of people? I think maybe they could respond to 
the north, the south, the east, and the west. People from all over. So there's four groups, four places that he's drawing people from. It's also more than likely that people faced real-life situations like these that God rescued them out of. But I also think that the psalmist is, is using these descriptions of, of real-life rescues to help us understand, to help us feel our lostness and our desperation apart from the steadfast love of God reaching out to us and rescuing us. He wants us to consider the steadfast love of the Lord. And that begins by helping us feel what it's like to be in desperation and cry out to him and be saved. These situations remind us of how great our need was before we found Christ. And they remind us of our minute-by-minute need of Christ in this world of darkness. They invite us to call out to the Lord whenever we're in distress because God is a great deliverer. They command us to give thanks to the Lord. The pattern is to remember your need, call out to the Lord, and give God thanks. That's the pattern, isn't it? Remember your need, call out to the Lord, and give God thanks. Simple enough. But this is poetry. And, it's, and because it's poetry, we can't just identify the pattern. We need to feel what the psalm is saying. And so let's try to do that. So in verses 4 to 9, in these descriptions of redemption, the first thing we see is that to illustrate what we've been saved from and how great God's redemption is and what the steadfast love of the Lord is like, he says, we were hungry wanderers and now we are home and satisfied. That's the picture. We were hungry wanderers and now we're home and we're satisfied. I don't know about you, but I've been lost before. Not, not really lost, but, you know, lost enough to feel like I didn't know when I was going to get back to some place that I recognized. Um, lost enough to panic a little bit, you know. I've been lost, but by God's grace, I've never been homeless. I've never been without a place to call my, my home, without a city that I would say is my city. Maybe you felt that, I don't know. Of course, we can all feel that, can't we? We can all feel lost, and we can all also even feel homeless when we're neither. And that's the picture, I think that's the feeling that the psalmist is calling us into, of, of wandering in the desert with no home and no food and no hope of rescue. The Israelites certainly understood being lost and wandering in a desert, didn't they? They understood not having a place to call home, not having a land or a city of their own. The time spent in the desert for 40 years after the deliverance from Egypt marked them as a people. And so this description would call some of those images from their history to mind. Maybe images of, of Abraham or Jacob wandering in a land that was not their own would come to mind. Images that maybe now they feel like they understand after they have been in exile in Babylon for all these years. They understand what it's like to not have a home, to wander. They understand the despair of being away from home and then returning to a home that they don't even recognize. All of these images remind them and remind us that apart from God's steadfast love, we are wanderers in a desert with no home and no city to call our own. Our hearts are hungry, our hearts are starving, and our very souls will faint unless we find some help. But then, 
We called to the Lord in our trouble, and our faithful God delivered us from our trouble and from our distress. Verse 7 tells us that, that he took us from a wandering path, and he put us on a straight path into a city to call our own. Maybe in your travels, you were on some back roads. And sometimes when you're on back roads, you have no idea where you're going. You just feel like you're weaving in and out all over the place. And then finally, you get to the interstate. And the interstate feels like this straight shot to your destination. And that's sort of what's going on. They're wandering all over the place. And then suddenly they come to the interstate and it's leading to the city that they are longing for. And when we find ourselves out of the wilderness and on a straight path, we're called to give thanks for God's deliverance and for his wondrous work. Because he not only puts us on a straight path, he satisfies our deepest hungers. You see that? He satisfies the longing soul. This isn't just a stomach that God satisfies. He satisfies the hungry soul and fills it with good things. He fills our longing souls. Augustine wrote that our hearts are restless until they rest in God. And when we finally can rest, what a deep joy we feel. One of my daughters last Christmas illustrated something for me is one of my favorite Frederick Buechner quotes. It says this, the kingdom of God is where we belong. It is home. And whether we realize it or not, I think we are all of us homesick for it. We're homesick for the kingdom of God. And what does God do to us who are wandering around homesick and hungry in soul? He satisfies us. We were hungry wanderers and now we are home. We are satisfied. That's what redemption looks like. Then in verses 10 through 16, we're told that we were prisoners and now we are free. We were prisoners and now we are free. The picture in, in verses 10 through 12 is of someone in a dark dungeon, chained at night and forced to do hard labor by day with the shadow of death hanging over his head. This situation is hopeless and it is soul crushing. There is no expectation of release. There is no way of escape and there is no encouragement that he will ever complete his sentence. And this person is there, we're told, because he rebelled against God's good word. We see that in verse 11, because he rejected and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So this is not some false imprisonment. He earned this punishment. It's just, it's right. That's what the captivity was for the Israelites. It was the miserable end of, of a nation that had rebelled against God. And those that were sent into exile wondered, Will we ever be set free? Have we spurned God for the last time? And so too with us. Our rebellion and our sin brings God's judgment upon us. And we are under this penalty of eternal death because of our sin. Every one of us has spurned God's counsel. And so we are in this dungeon. The psalmist wants us to feel that. Can, can you feel the, the cold dampness of the prison of sin? The, the desperation that would be a part of that. The inability to ever get out. The ache in your soul because of the hard labor. The hopelessness. And in that hopelessness, if we would cry to the Lord, He will deliver us. 
He will shine into our darkness and break all of our bonds. Can you imagine being in a prison like that and then being set free? You're all but dead and you're given new life. That's what redemption is because if we've trusted in Christ, we have been set free. You and I have been filled with light and we've been set free from eternal judgment. So the psalmist says, let's give thanks to God for his steadfast love, for his wondrous work, for the fact that he has shattered the doors that imprisoned us, that he has cut the bars that kept us under judgment and that he's done it by taking that judgment on himself. That he's taken the death penalty for our rebellion against God's word and he has died in our place. And he's given us his righteousness so that no charge can ever be brought against us again. He has freed us forever through his steadfast, loyal love that took him all the way to death, even death on a cross. We were hungry wanderers, and now we are home and satisfied. We were prisoners. Now we are free. The third illustration of what it means to be redeemed, we were afflicted fools. Now we are joyful worshipers. We were afflicted fools, but now we are joyful worshipers. We see this in verses 17 to 22. Similar to those that were in prison, the ones that are described in verses 17 and 18 are facing pain because of their own foolish decisions. They spurned good advice and they spurned the the word of God and they chose the way of sin. And because of that sin, they suffered affliction. Affliction that brings them near to death, it says there. They drew drew near in verse 18, they drew near to the gates of death. Death is the result of all sin, isn't it? And we see that here in this description. As I read those two verses, what comes to my mind, not exclusively, but just in this moment, is, is addiction. Addiction. Addiction to drugs or alcohol that brings death to the body. Addiction to, to images on a computer spring that bring, screen that brings death to a marriage. Addiction to work that brings death to a family. Addiction to entertainment that brings death to joy. Addiction to sin that brings death to our souls. Do you see this? That sin is the way of foolishness. It promises to fill us, but it sucks us dry. We've all felt this. We thought we knew what we were doing. We thought that this was going to make us happy. We thought the end would be joy, but suddenly we look around and we find ourselves at the gate of death and we're almost ready to walk through it. And as we lay in the dust, we're emaciated, we're dying, we finally call out to the Lord. And when we do, what happens? He hears us and he delivers us. He sends his word, verse 20 says, he sends his word to heal and redeem us. The word of truth reveals the foolishness of sin and the same word whispers in our ear and it says, this is the way, walk in it. And the word ultimately is Jesus Christ, the one who never fell into the foolishness of sin, the one who redeems us by his own righteousness. And so, again, we're called to give thanks. Give thanks for his loyal love, for his wondrous work on our behalf, to offer sacrifices and worship to him as the only one who can fill our longing hearts. We give him praise as the source of true knowledge and the source of life and hope and peace. We were hungry wanderers, but now we are home and we're satisfied. We were prisoners and now we are free. We were afflicted fools, 
but now we are joyful worshipers. And the fourth image is that we were sailors lost at sea. And now we praise God with his people. We were sailors lost at sea. Now we praise God with his people. I'm sure traveling by ship would have been more common when this was written. I don't know how many of you have been lost at sea. Hopefully none of you have had that experience. But maybe you've been out on a boat and you suddenly look around and realize that you're completely surrounded by water. That's scary enough in itself, isn't it? Let alone without a a storm coming. But the longest description here is for these sailors at sea. They were going about their business only to be overtaken by a storm. And they're, they're lifted by the waves and then they're dropped into the depths of, of those waves. I still remember reading the book Endurance about the journey of Ernest Shackleton and his crew down to Antarctica. And they described the trip from the, the, the bottom of South America across to Antarctica and the, what that ship ride was like. And they said that if you were to look out the, the portholes, that what you would see is, in one moment you would see sky, and then the next moment you would see water, and then you would see sky, and then you would see water, because the, the waves were 50 feet, sometimes more than that, just up and down. And that's the image that I think is here, of just being tossed all over the place. It's interesting to me that the sin of these sailors is not made explicit, so it may be here to remind us that whether we rebel outwardly in blatant ways or whether it's just in the secret parts of our heart, we're all sinners in need of rescue. That, that all sin, whether it's, it's blatant and clear or not, all sin takes us into the middle of a raging sea where we can hardly stand where we're, as my version says, at our wit's end, where all of our wisdom is swallowed up and we can do nothing. We can't, we can't get our way out of it. You can't, if you're in the middle of the ocean in a storm, what can you do? There's almost nothing you can do. You can't think your way out of it. You can't use your strength to get out of it. You are at the mercy of this ocean. What can you do? All you can do is cry out to the Lord. And that's what they do here. They cry out to the Lord in their trouble. And when we do that, when we're in the midst of our sin, in the midst of trouble, he delivers us from our distress. He stills the storm and hushes the wind with a word. He quiets the water. And it says he takes them to a calm cove. He takes them to their desired haven. What a picture. The raging seas into what I would imagine, you know, some sort of beautiful beach with clear blue water. And the boat just sits there. And so when that happens, what do we do? We give thanks to the Lord. From being lost on the sea, we find ourselves not just in a cove, but we find this this individual in the congregation of the redeemed. He's praising with with other people in the temple. He's praising um, God for having saved him. He was alone in the ocean, and now he's gathered with God's people, giving thanks. What does God's redeeming love look like? Well, it means that we were hungry wanderers and now we are home and we are satisfied. You feel that? That's what redemption looks like. We were prisoners in a dungeon and now we're free. That's redemption. We were afflicted fools, beat up by our own sin and now We can know what joy is and know what worship is. 
We were sailors lost at sea. We had no hope whatsoever of getting out of that situation. And now, now we're part of God's people and we praise him together with them. Following the, those four descriptions of redemption, verses 33 to 42 illustrate the various ways that it's not the, the seemingly self-sufficient who are saved, but it's those who cry for help. It describes us as, as deserts that God fills with water, that we are the hungry who he feeds, that we are a parched land that he can bring forth fruit from. It's when we realize that we are needy and when we call out for help from God, that's when he raises us up. We are the opposite of what's described in this article that I read. Uh, one week ago, this author wrote, as you read this, two men are walking across Antarctica alone together. Both, the adventurous, both are adventurous and fit. Lewis Rudd, 49, a British Royal Marine combat veteran who has hiked to the South Pole before. Colin O'Brady, 33, a U.S. adventurer who survived severe burn injuries to become a mountaineer and professional triathlete. They are each walking the 921 miles across Earth's highest, driest, coldest continent, taking two parallel routes only a mile apart. The two are joined in a shared objective. Each wants to become the first person to cross Antarctica unsupported. But the nature of their goal means that neither of them can seek help from the other or from anyone else. For the journey to count as unsupported, neither can accept, accept assistance of any kind, not even as much as the New York Times pointed out, a cup of tea from the researchers at the South Pole station, they'll pass on the way. Can you imagine what that would feel like? It's an interesting article talking about the folly of that, of trying to do something by yourself. And I, I guess it could, they could be a, an example of endurance, maybe an example of, of courage, but you know what they're not an example of? They're not an example of redemption. Because redemption comes for those who find themselves in a barren wasteland with no food, no hope, not sure what direction they're looking. And when they find themselves in that place, they call out for help. They seek help. That's what redemption looks like. It looks like calling out for help from God. Help from the God who brings life to all the dead and barren places of our souls through the work of Jesus Christ. A help that only God can give because if he doesn't help us, we're dead. And so that's why we get together because we're a bunch of people that cried out for help. We gather together from the north and the south, from the east, from the west, from all of our various hopeless situations and we come as the redeemed of the Lord. We're not the people that have it all together, right? When you walk through the door, that's what you're admitting. I come to church because I don't have it all together. We're not the people that, that never needed it to cry out for help. If we never needed to cry out for help, then why in the world would we, would we be here? We're not the people who don't currently need to cry out for help. Rather, we are the prodigals who wandered and were lost and hungry, longing for a home. And when we cried out for help, the Lord reached out to us in steadfast love. And then he clothed us in his robe, in his righteousness. 
and he made us sons and daughters. That's who we are. We're people who were in a dark dungeon. That's what Wesley describes. That's how we sing it, right? That long our imprisoned spirit laid fast bound in sin and nature's night. But then in a moment, when we cried out for help, God sent this quickening ray. In fact, even before we cried out for help, God sends this quickening ray, this enlivening, life-giving ray of light, wakes us up, we call for help, and he delivers us from the shadow of death, just like Peter was delivered from Herod's prison and just walked out through the bars. The chains of sin and death fell off. Our hearts were freed. We rose, went forth, and followed Jesus. We were all fools, every single one of us. We were all fools that said in our hearts, there is no God, and we lived out that belief, and we found ourselves at the end of it at death's door. But then we cried out to God, and he redeemed us. We were like the disciples in the storm. And they cried out for help, assuming that they were going down until Jesus stepped onto the deck and with his word he changed the raging sea into calm and they knelt on the ship in thanks and astonishment. We rightly give thanks to God when we rightly remember how great our need was and still is when we reflect on how calling out to God, that was our only hope. And then we can give him thanks. Paul writes, when we see Jesus, we, we, we through the gospel see Jesus as just and justifier, that he is the righteous one and he's the one who makes us righteous. And what's the conclusion of that in Romans 3.27? Paul asks a question. Paul always had good questions then what becomes of our boasting? What do we do with boasting? He says, it's excluded. There's no hope for boasting if, you're, if you are redeemed by God's steadfast love. It's, rede- it's, it's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Steadfast love brings redemption through faith, and faith excludes boasting because faith excludes the entire idea of you earning any part of your redemption ever. And so the result of considering the steadfast love of the Lord is to give him thanks. It's to recognize how lost, how imprisoned, how dead, how hopeless we all were until Jesus saved us. And then we give him thanks with our mouths, with our lives, given in joyful service to him and for his glory. Verse 2 tells us that the redeemed of the Lord are to say so. And verse 32 places us in the congregation of the redeemed. And so there's part of this where it's not just simply this personal thanksgiving, is it? We are to publicly say that we are redeemed. We are to testify to and witness to the fact of God's redeeming grace in our daily lives. And we're to do it with our words. We do it as we sing songs to one another. We share our stories of redemption with one another, both of our salvation and of our daily help that comes from the Redeemer. And the redeemed of the Lord say so, not just with their words, but they say it with their actions. If we are redeemed, then we should live our lives like people who recognize how helpless we were before God saved us. That that we are humble people. We're not prideful people. Redeemed people have no place for pride. 
we recognize how hopeless we were and that God's grace and God's grace alone awakened us to call out for help. And so we relate to everyone else who's helpless. Helpless people, we, we know exactly how they feel because that's, how, that's who we are apart from Christ. We don't look down on anyone because we were homeless. We were dead. We were foolish and we were lost until God rescued us. And we can look at people and we can, we can honestly say that there's no one who is so lost that they can't be redeemed by God's great love. Whatever the situation, however foolish they are, however dark the dungeon is, however bad the desert is, however deep the sea is, it doesn't matter. God can save them if they will call out out of their distress. He delivers them, just like he's delivered us. And so you know what we should do? We should be like God. God saves these people. We should, we should, the redeemed of the Lord should say so with their lives, and so we should be kind like God. We should show kindness to the homeless and to the refugees and to the hungry and to prisoners and to sinners, and to addicts, and to people who are affected by natural disasters, and even to people who are just going about their daily lives, and then they suddenly realize that they're in deep danger. We should meet their needs as best we can, and then we should tell them that their visible despair is nothing compared to their eternal hopelessness apart from Christ, but that if they will call out to him, he will save them. If you've never humbled yourself and bowed your knee to Jesus, then let me say that he is full of redeeming love. Jesus can and he does rescue everyone who cries out to him. Everyone who repents of their sin and trusts in the work of Jesus is saved. And so call out to him if you never have. And brothers and sisters, let's live in light of God's redeeming, steadfast, loyal love. He saved us. He saved us from death itself. He's made us his own. He's filled us with good things. He set us free. When you want to sin, consider the steadfast love of the Lord and cry out to Him. When you're jealous or you're discontent, consider the steadfast love of the Lord and cry out to Him. And when you feel lonely and unloved and you feel homeless, consider the steadfast love of the Lord and cry out to Him. And when you just feel sort of lost, remember God's steadfast love and cry out to Him. The psalm tells us in every situation, whatever it is, if God has saved us from eternal damnation, then we should consider the steadfast love of the Lord and cry out to Him 
and we know that he will rescue us and then we can give him thanks, which is what we'll do for all eternity.